Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. With nearly 430 units in the national park system, of which 63 are national parks, we all probably could use a little help in planning our adventures into the park system. But do you simply visit a park's website to plan your trip? Find an online guidebook? Buy a hardcover guidebook? Or simply wing it when you reach your destination? This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. I must confess, I've taken all three approaches, and I've even written a guidebook to the parks and probably a fair amount of guidebook material on the Traveler. Today, though, we're reaching out to two writers who make their livings writing National Park guidebooks. Becky Lomax is the author of USA National Parks, The Complete Guide to All 63 National Parks from Moon Travel Guides, as well as her latest titles, Best of Glacier, Banff, and Jasper, Make the Most of One to Three Days in the Parks, which she co-wrote with Andrew Hempstead, and Glacier National Park, Hiking, Camping, Lakes, and Peaks. Michael Oswald is the author of Your Guide to the National Parks, National Park Maps, and Atlas of the United States National Parks, and The Day Hiker's Guide to the National Parks, and I believe he's also got a journal book out there you can pick up. We'll be back in a minute with Michael and Becky to pick their brains about the national parks. Embrace the perks of an Interior Federal membership, where our benefits can save you up to $2,800 a year. Take advantage of discounts on insurance like auto, home, and AD&D. Shop for travel deals. Get a discount on password security and identity theft protection, too. Discover all Interior Federal has to offer. Learn more and apply at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Smokey's Life. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life Journal is a biannual magazine produced by Smokey's Life, formerly the Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokieslife.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, Becky, Michael. Thanks Hi, Kurt. Glad to be here. <laughs> Great to have Thanks you guys. Me, Kurt. I, I, I'm watching the feed and then listening to myself. I'm like, oh, but, but yeah, I... Uh, Thanks for having me, Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to see you, too. And, and yes, we do record video when we record these podcasts. For the listeners out there, that's just because I like to look at who I'm talking to rather than just talking into the void. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you guys have written a few guidebooks to the national parks. And um, I'm curious how you approach your books, knowing that there are so many park guides out there. I mean, it's almost like a cookie cutter industry out there with uh, National Geographic books, moon guides, lonely planet guides, um, insider guides, this guide, that guide. Any special approach you guys take to try and differentiate your titles? Becky, we'll start with you. Well, <laughs> that's kind of a wild question. Um, you know, writing moon travel guides, moon kind of has a format that we use. So that's what I follow is... Um, the consistent format that's across all of the national park parks books that are written, you know, for the whole U S and also all their travel guides. So people that use moon travel guides are really familiar with, Oh, I open it up and I'm going to see planning for your trip. And then I'm going to see this, and then I'm going to see that. And then the lodging is going to be in this section and so forth. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, for me, it's like, 
okay, let's put the stuff in there and then weaving in as much as I can on specialty issues that need to be dealt with. Like, um, well, big specialty issue is the parks that are requiring entrance tickets now, as opposed to just driving in willy-nilly whenever you want and trails that you need those for and things like that. So those those are super important to get into the books, I think. Sure, sure. Don't you feel that kind of constraining, though? What? The, the, the cookie-cutter approach. This is the template. You will follow it. Um, you know, right at first when I did 20 years ago, I kind of went, uh-huh. But um, no, it's it's actually maybe it's just that I've gotten used to working with it, so it it works pretty easy for me. But it's you know it's easy to take anything that doesn't fit in that cookie cutter. It's really easy to take it and make a special call out on it. So that'll attract more attention, and and you can you know fill out anything on you know grizzly bears or um, wildlife in this area or you know special park issues that they need to know to visit a certain area. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Michael, um, you weren't a journalist by training. You abandoned your educated career and embarked on uh, writing guidebooks to the national parks. And as such, you were an independent. So you could make it up as you went along, so to speak. I mean, how did you come up with um, the template you put together for your guide to the national parks? Uh, yeah, so my degree, I'm an engineer, and I kind of took that pragmatic thinking and applied it to a guidebook. And uh, I'm speaking for myself, but I think I probably can speak for all three of us that the parks have given us a lot of joy and uh, just everything that's possible in there. And I've taken more or less that approach to my guidebooks, trying to show everyone what's possible in the parks between activities, trails, because they're vast expanses, right? Like uh, Yellowstone's over a million acres or two over two million acres. Uh, Death Valley, what what is that? Like three three million acres, four million acres, something like that. So these are three. huge spaces, and in general, when you go in there, I think most people are directed to a handful of places, and for better or worse, that creates the crowding situations. Right, right now, kind of uh, everywhere I go, I always hear it's not like it used to be, or there's too many people, and it's uh, I, it's true. It's definitely true at certain places at certain times. But um, it's a big country. There's lots of land. If we look around, we can find places. If, if that's what you're looking for is solitude, you can always find that. So you need more examples of places to go, public land to explore and uh, things to do. So I take a more, uh, I guess, uh, abundant approach to, to show everything that's possible, which could maybe make headaches for National Park staff or other people just not expecting to find someone somewhere. And obviously, I don't know everything, too. Like, uh, I'm just one person doing this national park thing in a big country with 85 million acres of national park land. Obviously an impossible task in my lifetime, but uh, I'm going to keep working on it and and trying to trying to show more over the course of my life. You know, you mentioned um, the size of some of the parks, Yellowstone, 2.2 million acres, um, Death Valley, somewhere between 3 and 3.5. It might be 3.3 million acres, something like that. And you've got other other parks. I mean, you go up to Wrangell St. Elias and it's like 13 million acres, isn't it? <laughs> and so you guys are writing these guidebooks. Um, you don't have an unlimited financial budget. How much time on average do you spend in a national park doing your research for your chapter on that national park? Uh, yeah, so I can, I can start there. I, 
so over the years i do one circuit for each edition and uh i don't know what is like i've accumulated years in the parks not months but uh it's different park to park like congaree i was there for a day hiked all the trails and then felt pretty good about it and keep going back to see what's different similar situation in white sands one of the newer national parks too hiked all the trails in a day and away i went but yellowstone if we go back to there a thousand miles of trails i'm just scratching the surface and uh looking forward to getting back there in april but uh yeah so it's it's, it's proportionate to the size of the park and then there are you brought up wrangell st elias so those are harder ones to reach and uh when you're looking at the cost associated with visiting some of them and whether you do it right so i actually haven't visited some of the flying only parks or walking like if you look at Cobuck valley where you could walk in and say you've been there and checked it off and i'm like well that's dumb and if on, you, gates you know, of the arctic. You look, what's that gates of the arctic let's go yeah get, oh i'd love to I, I i was just talking to a pilot the other day and i'm like do you know any bush pilots i'd like to hire one for a couple weeks in summer and yeah. really get to see alaska and he's like let me look and see if i can find somebody because I, I actually had a friend reach out to me after the first edition and he's like hey mike i got a plane in alaska and I was thinking about him in our high school experiences together, just major clown. I'm like, I would not trust this guy in a bush point. You hear enough stories about that and and hear about people running out of fuel or or whatever happening. I'm like, I don't think uh, <laughs> I want him as my pilot. But I will I will vet this and and do that eventually. I've always wanted to go up there for a river trip. So so let me know when you get that pilot. And um, you know, I'm gonna have lots of time pretty soon. So <laughs> I, I will definitely let you know. And I was telling this this guy the same thing. If you can find me a good person, there's gonna be room on that plane. It's just me. So <laughs> let's uh let's fill it with people that are add to the experience and, and go. Absolutely, absolutely. Becky, what about you? Well, um <laughs> that's a funny question. I I hit probably every year, probably around 10 to 15 parks, depending on what I'm doing. And some of those are repeat, repeat, repeats, um, you know, especially my, the ones that I live near, like Yellowstone, Tetons, sure. Glacier. I mean, that's 20 minutes for me. Um, so those, I kind of don't even count as, as, <laughs> I mean, they're the parks that just go to all the time. So it's kind of like, um, whatever new ones I can get in every or not new ones necessarily, but whatever repeats or new ones I can get in every year I do. And there are, you know, I've got a handful. I'm just like Mike, I've got a handful of parks left that are the big fly-ins and things like that, that I still have to do. But what Moon has done is like, I'm thinking the Alaska parks that Mike was just talking about is the text comes, has come from the Alaska writer. And so they bought the text, they take that, I take it, reconstruct it into the format for this particular book, and then update anything that needs to get updated, like, you know, addresses, phone numbers, prices, um, trails that aren't there anymore, trails that are, new things, things like that. So that's yeah. how kind of we deal with that. Yeah. The reason I asked is, is um, years ago, decades ago, I wrote The Dummies Guide to the National Parks. And I had to go from coast to coast. And I remember I was in Shenandoah for, I think, two nights. And, you know, you, you wake up at the crack of dawn and you're out, you're hiking as many trails as you can and seeing as many sites as you can and boom, boom, boom. And, you know, people think this work is, is glamorous and fun and restful. It's anything but that. I'm sure you can agree. <laughs> yes, comes that's to, true. Comes to, 
come sleep in the back of my, my truck with me and see how glamorous it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, Becky, Mike, one, one thing that has got me glad that I'm retiring soon is artificial intelligence. What, what is that going to do? I mean, we can talk about what it's going to do to journalism in general, but what is, what's it going to do to guidebook writing? I mean, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of these guidebooks are, are cookie cutter. They follow very definite templates. Do we need a writer or do you just throw all that verbiage in and let the AI write it? I think you need a writer. And part of the reason is you've got to have somebody that can go get and knows how to get the current information and the current updates on things. And like, you need to know basically, okay, this is, this is a part that deals with rec.gov. I need to be deal pulling them in here for part of it. This is a part that has, you know, always has climate change disaster things happening like wildfires or whatever. So you have to update that. I'm not sure AI can pull all of that in yet. And I do find AI a little disconcerting. I mean, I can see some of its value, but it's a little disconcerting when um, the training for AI pulled in two of my books without even, you so know, much for copyright. Anything. Yeah, it's like, so that's the thing that I, I find disconcerting is the fact that copyright is starting not to matter at all with AI. Uh, unless you're the New York Times and you have lots of money and lots of lawyers to go after. Um, <laughs> the AI companies. Michael, what do you think? I have no clue. I, I mean, I think Google probably has more than enough information to do a better job than any of us. It's a question of uh, if they have the will or the desire or the moneyed interest behind them to do it. But I, like they can make a really cool just trip planner. Like people kind of like having decisions out of their hands and figure everything out between booking and there'd be lots of ways to monetize it for them. But uh but I, I have I have no idea. I think in in regards in regards to like uh, like on Twitter, you see a bunch of people making math equations that don't add up mathematically. And I sometimes think, is this just to like fool AI and confuse it? And there's that there's that factor in things too. If it's just taking in all this data and you have a bunch of bad data and a bunch of good data and and to sort it out, is it is it worth the computer's time to figure it out if they're if they're giving unreliable information? But I, I no no clue. Computers are definitely smarter than me. I know that much. So if, uh, <laughs> if if they if they choose to do it, I'm sure they can. Yeah, it's it's a scary scenario, and um, we'll see what um, turns out down the road with that. Um, most unusual park. Most unusual. I, I think, think one of the most unusual <laughs> parks. It's got to be some of those parts like in the southeast. Like you mentioned Congaree, Mike. And when I went there, I kind of walked around with my mouth wide open because I was catching bugs. Because it was just so utterly different with how much water just, you know, runs over. It's not a swamp. It's running water over the landscape. And to create such a different environment of trees that, um, you know, heck, we don't have those trees in Montana. It was, it was an amazing environment to see. I really, I really kind of enjoyed it. Congaree feels like there's some dinosaurs wandering around in there somewhere. But <laughs> I, I, I think like the, the weird ones are definitely Death, Death Valley and Joshua Tree, some of those desert environments where Joshua Tree just feels like 
the sky opened up and dropped a bunch of boulders on the earth and you're like what like how did these get here like and the trees don't make a whole lot of sense either and and death valley's similar thing where everything's just bizarre now you've got a lake lake manly out there and uh in the lowest lowest spot in the americas but there are i mean they're all like geographically unique and but i think those are the most bizarre to me you know i like um i like the parks like uh olympic and and hawaii volcanoes because they're not just one park they're they're three parks in one each one of those i mean at olympic you've got the pacific coast there you've got the rainforest and you've got the the high alpine um glaciated areas at um hawaii volcanoes of course you got the pacific coastline you've got rainforest and a couple of volcanoes thrown in just to make things exciting from time to time um talk about bizarre um you know, we, uh, my wife and I went to Hawaii Volcanoes, I think it was in 2021, November 2021, with um, our son and his wife. And um, we were there for a week, and a week is not enough. What amazes me in all my years of writing about parks and visiting parks is how little time people spend in the parks. I mean, uh, at Yellowstone National Park, I think the average visit is 3.2 days. At uh, Hawaii Volcanoes, uh, the ranger was telling me the other day, three to four hours. They they come up, they peer into the crater, Kilauea's crater. Hopefully it's erupting, you know, get some nice pictures. And then they're out of there. It just amazes me. Yeah. You know, that's something that I really have trouble with because when I go to a park, I want immersion. And so I, I will stay as long as I can and do you know, everything I possibly can within that time. And the whole concept for me of tagging and going is, I don't get it. <laughs> you no. know, it just boils down to that. I just don't get it. No. Has, has there been a trend on that? Like, I, I feel in my heart that it's shifting towards people spending more time, but I don't know that like, uh, I know you said about like just showing up and winging it. And I am like you two where I don't understand that methodology, but a lot of people do have fun. Or just like get there. What do we do now? And then kind of like ask a ranger or see what other people are doing, or look for a, a lineup of cars and then join it and and see what's next. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But I mean, I'm kind of in the same. I've been doing these uh, camping and RV shows, and every time we're going to Utah, and so kind of every tries to do all five parks in one trip in a week, and I'm like, bad strategy. <laughs> like, yeah. Pick two at best, and then uh, really get to see them, or uh, or even just one. Yeah, I've had questions about, hey, I want to visit Grand Teton, Yellowstone, and Glacier, and I've got five days. What would you suggest? <laughs> and usually, usually I say, road time on that. <laughs> I would, I would say, throw out two of those parks. <laughs> yeah, there's always that funny story of the ranger at Yosemite Valley, right? When somebody says, "I have one hour or two hours to to sit," and he's like, "Sit on that rock and cry." <laughs> and... <laughs> you know, and there's so much to do in the parks i mean whether you're into hiking or whether you're into geyser gazing or cultural um historical there, there's so many different things to focus on and and i just don't see how you can do it in two or three days or a week or a week i mean when we were at uh, hawaii volcanoes we we went from the, the coastline um into the rainforest and partway up mauna loa and it was just a, a sampler and you could spend you know, three or four days in any one of those locations. And there's a lot of parks like that. Anyway, I'm curious. Um, it's kind of a discussion on just work culture, though, right? Like, uh, 
you hit, only have a week of vacation. And then everybody tries to make it count. Like that's their definition of making it count is going to the most amount of places to have. Yeah. But, but neither here or there, nor there. We're talking parks. Take a picture, say I was there and move on. Um, you know, in the case of Hawaii, you know, the ranger said, well, you know, a lot of people are coming out from the mainland and they want to see as many of the islands as possible. Okay, that kind of makes sense. But but even still, um, there's so much to see and learn in a national park. It's just incredible. Um, what's your favorite park? I mean, Becky, I think I know yours. And <laughs> what is that? <laughs> I think it's in the background there, that glacier. Uh, yeah. It, oh, it is. Um, yeah. You know, I've lived out 20 minutes outside of glacier for about 30 years. And it's, for me, it's just, it's my sanity land. It's where I go when I need to clean my brain, find joy, immerse myself in, uh, in, a, in a park and, you know, the difficulty for us right now, of course, is having moved from, uh, let's see, we're on year four now, having moved several years ago to the timed entry, uh, ticket reservation for entry in the summer, that's changed how we've all dealt with the park. And so we can no longer go, oh, my lands woke up, the weather's really great, let's go climb, you know, whatever peak and it's you can't really do that anymore because of that entry thing yeah and i i like it's a love-hate relationship with it because the the upside is that it is really really pulled off the congestion and it, you still find certain places that are congested like logan pass definitely but it's made it a much more pleasant experience. And when you drive up the road, you no longer have piles of cars on, you know, just every piece of roadside possible going up, going to the Sun Road. So it it has made a difference and made things more definitely more pleasant. But what's weird is even last year, year three of that entry requirement, we were still getting loads of people showing up that had no idea. Yeah. So it's kind of like, for me, it's like, what do you need to do to plan your trip? One, go look online at that particular park and see what has started up recently that you need to be aware of. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm on the fence about these reservation systems and, you know, a month or so ago we had uh, a guest on from national parks conservation association who had really drilled down into what was going on with the reservation systems. And she was really, um, pro reservation systems and one of our listeners um after the show came with a wonderful question that i hadn't thought about had she ever tried to get a reservation oh had i she? mean I, I i didn't think to ask her during the show so i i, I wish i had because you know if you work with recreation.gov it's got to be one of the worst systems out there oh totally uh, totally but the concept of Pulling off, I mean, I think what our traffic was like this couple summers right before we started the reservation system here at Glacier, it was nasty. That's the only word for it. Just nasty. I I agree with that, but I I think there's other ways to deal with it. Anyway, Mike, your favorite park. Well, I can speak to this too. I've been out there with the people. And uh, so I've done an informal survey. And I would say that nine people like the reservation system out of 10. 
and the, then there's one that's like they're keeping us out of our parks and then that one person's not happy but these are all they're all tourists going coming from a long ways away and ryan zinke they want they want to have the planning ahead of time so you'd expect them to like it where locals it might be uh it's a it's another story and, and glacier is like a weird one now where you can get in the east entrance and go into the sun road and need a time entry permit for the west entrance and yeah but medicines. that makes sense at least the way it works um over here the west entrance is the one where all the traffic comes from right east entrance it, you know there's just a few hotels over in saint mary a couple in east and that's about it so you don't have the volume of traffic and i think they just wanted to try it for this year you know maybe it'll become permanent but um they have changed this is year four and they've changed the program every single year as far right. as what roads when they start, when, you know, the hours, that kind of stuff. And so it'll be interesting to see how it happens. But for those of us living on the west side, that's a five-hour round-trip drive to go to St. Mary to get in that east entrance without a an entrance ticket. So Right. Yeah. None of, none of those superintendents are in an enviable situation. It's a uh, the rock, the literal rock in a hard place. You you change anything and people are going to be upset one one way or the other. Totally. It, it has unintended consequences too. Like my last time out at Glacier where I, I'm waking up early no matter what, but it created a lot more early birds too, right? Where people are getting oh, yeah. in. I know last year you couldn't get in the west side because of construction early. I, I'm I'm pretty sure. And then, yeah, for uh, part of the summer. But before, so you've got a great big convoy of people getting up to Logan Pass early yeah. in the morning. Then it's uh, people with their reservation permits can they find a parking space still at, at some of those places where, but, but back to the original question, time, time entry permits will be a, a discussion for the ages, I'm sure. And uh, AI will figure it out. They'll find a solution. <laughs> but, Resistance uh, is futile, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm accepting with whatever. I'll find something else if I, if I have to, but uh, yeah, so so my favorite, I have a top tier of three. I think Glacier is in there, Yosemite is in there, and Yosemite and Yellowstone is in there. They're super like world wonder type places. And I and looking at your picture in the back, that reminded me of uh Stephen Matt, like that was Stephen Mather's happy place too, right? Like he had some oh, mental yeah. mental situations and he'd always uh, get himself in a hospital room and just have a picture of Glacier in front of him. Which I'm like, I can totally see that. <laughs> Find a happier place. Before we leave Glacier, I have to ask you guys, over in St. Mary's, is the pie store still there? Um, yes, but the the baker that made the pies left, oh man, about 10 years ago. Yeah. She moved over to East. And, uh, to East or to West? East Glacier, sorry. Oh. Um, moved south of St. Mary to East Glacier, so she's baking pies there now. So if you go in the little cafe in East Glacier, you'll get them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember that sign, you know, pie is strength. Right. <laughs> they had Her a retire that too. <laughs> Re retirement plan? Baker? Baker and no. Glacier? No, no, no. I got a dog. I got a dog. I got a pickup truck. I need a camper, but I, I'm two-thirds of the way there. I'm trying to convince my wife she needs to retire with me. This is Kurt Rappencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today about National Park guidebooks with two guidebook experts, Michael Oswald and Becky Lomax. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. 
If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Okay, we're back with Becky and Michael. Something you didn't know about a park until you visited it. Mm. Tough question, tough question. The first thing I think of is just trees. Like I don't, trees. I don't know. I, I always, I generally like trees. Like I think whenever I go through a city, I prefer a city with trees versus no trees. But once yeah. you get west and you saw some of those really big trees that I've never ever seen before, <laughs> and you're just like, holy mackerel! Or the old one, the old ones true in the Eastern Sierra and and uh, Great Basin are pretty wild too. To think about what they've lived through, so that probably is the. Well, I, I, I don't. There's so many things. That you had to see to... There's got to be something, though. I mean, everybody knows Yellowstone, grizzly bears, geysers, hot springs. Yeah, it's still different yeah. in person, I think. The swimming pool at Old Faithful? That was that was heated from solitary spring, I believe. Oh, craziness. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go with Death Valley as being one of the places that I, you know, that place has got so much diverse terrain that when you stand in Badwater Basin, you're below below sea level by 200 and some odd feet. And you're staring up a telescope peak, which is what, 11,000, 12,000 feet, something like that. And it's yeah. got snow on the top. And that yeah. snow on the top matches what the salt flats look like in Badwater Basin. So it just messes with your brain. And then the other pet park I I've gone to that messed with my brain was White Sands Basin or White Sands because they plow the road and the sand off the road because, of course, the wind blows and it blows onto the road all the time. And the way the sand looks on the side it looks just like at home in Montana, what the snow plows leave on the side of the road. And so the whole time I'm driving this road, I'm thinking, is this snow or sand? What? You know, it just, it wasn't computing my head because I'm used to seeing snow on the sides of the road plowed up. And yet this was sand. So it was, it was really funny to have that kind of brain change thing going on there with trying to comprehend it. Interesting. Interesting. Just the diversity of sand we have in the United States is remarkable, right? White sand, sand sand, black sand, green sand, coral, pink pink sand. Totally. Okay, pop quiz. Which park has the tall sand dunes? Well, I think it's got to be great sand dunes, but I don't know if that's a there's sand dunes in Kobuk Valley. I think those are about 100 feet in Kobuk, but I think sand, great sand dunes might be the They're tallest. over 700 feet there. Yeah, yeah, great sand dunes. Yeah, Becky... Um, Becky Latson, our, our contributing photographer, um, just spent a week over there um, during the slow season at Great Sand Dunes, and I'm really anxious to see what she came back with, uh, photography-wise and word-wise. But um, nice it's, it, it's a park that's been on my list for a long time, and now that I got the pickup truck, and I'll have to figure out the dog. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that does complicate uh, things with pets. You're uh, you are a little limited. Yeah, you are. You are, but. Um, 
I'll figure something out. There's lots of national forests I can go into. Um, they let dogs run free. Um, secret places in the parks. We kind of we kind of touched on that, but I mean, do you ever spend time in a park doing your research and come across something that is so cool you don't want to tell anybody about it? I mean, people crit- criticize guidebook writers for e- exposing all the unique places in the world to mass humanity. Do you ever? Do you ever? get the sense that this is really cool. I'm not going to tell people about it. Well, I kind of have an unwritten rule for myself that um, I do not put off trail experiences in my books. I just don't, and I do a lot of them, but it's just not something for a couple reasons I don't want to share. One is that I think People need a level of experience before they start doing off-trail uh, scrambles and climbs and things like that. And unfortunately, I think there are quite a few people who don't recognize their own limitations and will go sure. and try things. And that frequently ends up as being rescue situations in parks, which, you know, we don't need any more of those. Yeah. So. That's one of the reasons. And the other is protection of the environment there. And because most of those places are up in real fragile areas like alpine tundras and things like that, that, you know, if you know how to do it and stay on rocks uh, rather than smashing tundra plants, then you can help protect the environment and still do the activity. But there's so many people that don't understand that, okay, you get above tree line in some of these parks and what grows there is so utterly fragile that if you stomp right across some of those plants, they're going to take a long time to grow back. So mm-hmm. it's, um yeah, that's why I just flat out don't, I stick to trails only for sharing in all of my guidebooks pretty much. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm torn on the issue. I definitely believe in democratization of uh, nature and and information, and uh, I, I think more of my hesitancy is about blowback from people that disagree with sharing information. But uh, I, I mean, there's like so when you talk about tundra, I know Tundra Communities Trail at Rocky Mountain National Park very easy, very easy to access, and it's kind of one of those trails where everybody directs everyone to. And then when everybody directs people there and then they complain about the trail being widening and getting destroyed, I'm like, well, this is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If anybody (laughs) comes there and they're winging it and like, well, go to Tundra Communities Trail. And you do that to every single (laughs) non-local person that comes there and they all go there. And then then you're like also sitting back and saying, well, the trail's ruined or the Tundra's ruined. That happens. But uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely share some things. And when I see things, I do think about that. And there's there's like, there's a routine when you meet people out in places and you find out about something and you say it to them, they always kind of like breathless for a second. And then they ask, how'd you find out about that? (laughs) And it's like, well, that's kind of dumb. So it's like, it's protecting it for themselves and others who know about it rather than things. Because there are are a lot of places that are fine to to walk around and explore. And I am with you. Obviously, you don't want to get people into situations that they shouldn't be in. So then it's up to us to describe it accurately enough and to what what could happen, what what are the risks involved. But uh, but yeah, I mean, historically, I always tried to 
not cover off trail things. But when it is basically a trail and you look at it, it's just not marked. Like I've seen I've seen other things where I've been out at Big Bend and somebody just wrote in Sharpie, nothing to see here. And I saw that <laughs> sign and I'm like, oh, I'm checking that one out. I bet it's gonna be awesome. Totally awesome. And I'm like, you're 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 only hurting yourself, people, where you're trying to hide things. And uh and similarly, like so I had, I had an, another popular off-trail site where people were hiking. Some, some I would call them good Samaritans, would build an occasional cairn to show an off-trail marker. And then other people knock it down. And and one guy, when he knocked it down, I just kind of glared at him. And then he turned around and put it back up. And I, was, I wasn't, like, serious. I'm just like, oh. And, but it's, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Again, these are, like, maybe... I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is. Again, it's difficult situations for people in the park to decide how to handle. But when there are a lot of people doing things, I think we have technological solutions to all these and maybe make it a more equitable thing and share information. Or I don't know. I, I, I get I get both sides. Hmm. I'm more like I want to know what's possible. And this is self, me selfishly, like wanting to know what's all out there and share it with others. But um yeah. So well, I guess I would lean the other way. Yeah. I, I always wonder, you know, in, in Yellowstone, there's you know all those hot springs and warm springs and, and people want to know where they can, you know, go hot pot. And um, I know there's a couple mentioned, but I, I, I have to believe there's lots more out there that word hasn't gotten out about. Here's a great hot spring that you can go and, and soak yourself in. But um, such a big park, so little time to explore it, figure out where they are. Some of that water is incredibly hot too. You could be getting that. That'd be a little more risky, and I'd be a little more leery of uh, sharing sharing any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, Mister Bubbles is in a lot of the guidebooks out there um, down in the uh, southwestern corner, um, Cascade Corner. There's got to be others. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, sixty three national parks, four hundred and almost thirty units in the national park system. Why do you guys just focus on 63? <laughs> well, go ahead, Mike. You can start this one. <laughs> yeah, just, just I mean, I'm just one human. I, I've thought about doing other things, and I have a, a, a general agreement with a, a, um admiring fan where I'm like, I'll cover all 428 at some point. He's like, just by the time I retire, I want you to have it done. And I'm like, I can I can probably make that happen. But uh but Must be just, a young fan. <laughs> for me, it's it's a it's just the type of things I like. So, for instance, I don't want to offend anybody here, but I don't care to go to military parks, historic military parks. I mean, that's for me. It's like ugh, I'd just rather read about it quickly in a book or that's something. Fascinating. <laughs> Not for me though. <laughs> And I, but you it, haven't gone to any, so how do you know? <laughs> well, I have gotten to one or two, and it's just like, okay, can we leave? Can we go? Can we go on a hike over, you know, in <sighs> some place or whatever? But I, yeah, I just, uh, for me, it's the national parks. I grew up going to the national parks. Um, you know, Rainier was our family favorite that we went to all the time. My dad worked there as a ranger before I was born. It's just, um, that's what I was, I grew up with was doing national parks. And so being outdoors in those, this, the big 63, that's what, what I love to do. What about Valles Caldera National Preserve? 
Oh, well, that, see, I would go to that. <laughs> There are there are others that I would go to. Some of the national monuments I really enjoy, but um, yeah, as a whole, yeah. you know, I don't put in the same category. Um, like nature, like nature, somebody's historic house or some presidential library or something like that. Okay, okay. Well, we we've had a trend in recent years where Congress has to decide that this is no longer a national monument. It's going to be a national park. Who who remembers Jefferson Memorial National Monument? Was it? Ah, uh, Gateway Arch. Yeah, that's not exactly a nature park, but it's it's a national park. Yeah, and I kind of don't like having it in the same category. <laughs> and so we should swap that out for Vias Caldera, perhaps. I agree. Yeah, or Chiricahua, or a couple other ones, you know? Well, I think Chiricahua's knocking on the door. I think it is, too. I hope yeah. it is. Yeah. But, okay, you don't like military parks. Um, what about um, places like Wapatki? Mm. Montezuma Castle. Castle. Uh, well, Crater. I haven't been to, so I don't know. I can't, oh, my goodness. I can't speak to them individual, or, yeah, individually, but... Michael? Have you been to Walnut Canyon? Have you been to Walnut Canyon? I have. Yeah, Arizona has tons of cool National Park Service units, and uh, but it is like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, we, you could do that all day, right? Like Glen Canyon is spectacular, but uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I dig the history ones too. I think our history is pretty fascinating, and uh, been reading about the presidents, and it's interesting how everything happens, kind of the the whatever push and pull against special interests and the private industry versus civil whatever what the civil interest yeah yeah i mean grand staircase could be a national park oh, uh, yes, san rafael swell they were talking about that as a national park back in the 30s yeah. fascinating place we actually, um, I learned, I learned about a guy here in Wisconsin who's trying to uh, just one man mobilize a grassroots effort to make the Driftless Area of Wisconsin a national park. And I'm like, right. how would that work? It's like almost all private land. It'd be a heck yeah. of a legal battle. Yeah, yeah. There's another one up there that I can't remember right now, but there, there's efforts underway in a number of corners of the country to to build out the national park system. Um, we're running out of time. There's some topics I'm crossing off that we're not going to get to, but. I'm sure everybody's wondering what to expect this summer. I mean, we've got reservation systems. We've got recreation.gov to deal with. We've got um, construction. Um, I think, um, what's it going to be like out there in the parks this summer? Any any expectations? I think one of the things people need to be aware of is the change in entry, not just with the reservation ticketing systems, but... Um, cashless entries. A lot of parks are not taking cash anymore and they're only taking credit, debit, or some of them will even take um, e-payment forms right. that, you know, would be on your form. But um, I think that's something that, you know, there's a whole group of people that don't go to national parks very often and would just, you know, hey, we're driving by, let's pop in and not realize that might be something they need to be aware of. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's nothing major, but it is a big change from what people have dealt with in the past with parks. Well, and something else I believe is um, when you buy your America the Beautiful Pass, I think it's just one signature. 
And I, I saw a comment on the Traveler the other day. Um, somebody was livid about that because I guess her husband signed it. And she can't take it when he's working to go to a park without buying her own park pass. Yeah. Yep, those are both good ones. I, I, I've been doing this the camping RV show tour, and those are common questions. Like just yesterday, somebody brought up the cashless situation. They're like, I can't use cash anymore. And I'm like, well, it's not all of them. It's it's still a my, very small minority of the parks. But uh, timed entry is the big thing. And but but who knows what what to expect? Like uh, the weather's been very unpredictable. Like this winter has been wild to say the least for for us northerners and uh anybody out there can ask me i'll be i'll be out there this summer and uh, i can tell you boots on the ground what's what's going on what people are doing and what people are thinking and what the parks are like it'll definitely be interesting and uh, uh sequoia kings canyon i guess they'll be uh, opening up more areas more access to areas that burned in recent years that should be interesting and the interpretation that goes along with that um so much to learn out there. Don't spend three hours in a park, folks. Spend at least four or five days in a park because there really is so much to learn and um, explore. Well, Michael, Becky, it's been great to have you guys here today. I wish we could talk longer, but um, everybody's got uh, time frames they can operate in, and uh, we've come to the end of our time frame. But uh, I certainly appreciate you making the time, and um, if the travel is around, maybe we'll... we'll connect um, during the middle of summer to get a report from the field to see what uh, is going on and if the traveler is not around michael let me know when you get that uh, ticket to gates arctic and um, i think we should go up for a, a week or 10 day float trip i know i know a good buddy who would go with us and he's a he's a raft guide so be in good hands you got a deal thanks for having us yep i always appreciate it kurt That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. With peak travel season approaching, now is a great time to study up on the parks you want to visit. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.